before the summer, what are you preaching on? And for anybody that's been here before, I preached through books of the Bible. Last year, I preached through the book of Ephesians. And so this is a follow-up to Ephesians, and that is First and Second Timothy. And the passage this morning has just been burning on my heart for a few weeks, in fact, a couple of months. And um, so it's important. The, the title of the message is The Value of Scripture. To ask this question, how important is your Bible? It's important, right? I take groups to Israel occasionally, not every year, but uh, six times over the last 10 or 12 years I've taken groups over there. And this year in Israel, I lost my Bible. We were at a place called En Gedi, which is the uh, place of the wild goat. It's where David hid out from Saul. If you remember the story of David hiding in a cave and Saul comes in and David cuts off part of the robe. You remember that story? That happened at En Gedi. It's a, an oasis, a freshwater waterfall in the middle of the desert. It's a cool place. I even have a picture of my Bible standing by the waterfall. That's my Bible tucked under my arm. But here's the problem. A couple of things happened at that waterfall. First of all, three Jewish individuals walked up and started telling me the story of En Gedi. And I said, yes, we just read that passage of Scripture. And one of them was amazed that I had that passage in my Bible. Well, it's in the Old Testament. We have that story. And so I remember having my Bible at En Gedi. When we got to the hotel that night, I went through my book bag and realized I've left my Bible, and that's the last place I remember having it. The other thing that would happen is people came up, would come up and say, take my picture. So I'd put my Bible on this rock and take their picture and pick the Bible back up. Well, that happened a number of times, and obviously one time I forgot to pick up my Bible. So I was devastated. My Bible's important. I, you know, it's, it's one of those Bibles just kind of, it just fell open to the right place. You know that kind of Bible? You knew where everything was on the page. You'd underline things. You'd made notes. It was important to get this Bible back, so I asked my, my guide, when we got back to the hotel, I realized his name's Louie. I said, Louie, I, I think I left my Bible in Engedi. So he called. He said, no problem. It'll, it'll, somebody will turn it in. He was, we come back, so I leave Israel without my Bible. We get back in the States, and I got two messages from Louie. He said, I've been by twice to Engedi, and uh, your Bible hasn't been turned in. And I thought, it's not going to be turned in. A few weeks later, in fact, we got back on the 25th. We were probably at Engedi on the 20th. On the 15th of February, I got an email from a guy named Richard Moore. He said, I was in Israel recently, and I was in a taxi cab leaving Engedi, and the cab driver asked me if I was a Christian. And he said, I told him I was, and so he handed me your Bible. And I had a sticker inside of my Bible. My name's on the front of it, the sticker inside of it. that had my email address, my phone number, my mailing address, my name. He said, isn't that something? He said, I, I lived in South Carolina for a few years in the 70s and 80s, and that's just something that I found your Bible. And I thought, he has no intention of sending me this Bible. He just wanted me to know he's got it. <laughs> so I emailed him back and I said, yes, I was there just a few weeks ago. I've been praying that my Bible would be returned to me. I'll gladly pay you if you ship it back to me. And here's what I get in response. I'll see what I can do. You jump the gun, Casey. There's a picture of my Bible on a pillow. And I'm thinking, well, is this like a hostage situation? <laughs> you know, I mean, that's what it looks like. That's my Bible. And so I emailed him back. I said, are you still in Israel? He said, no, I live in Ireland. I'm now in Ireland. My Bible's getting more frequent flyer miles than I am. I'm thinking, why would you take my Bible to Ireland? And it's been weeks. If he had turned my Bible into pretty much any hotel, they would have kept it. My guide could have gone by and gotten it. There's groups back and forth all the time. He could have either mailed it or sent it back to me. And it's like the thought had never crossed this guy's mind that you could mail me my Bible. So 
thought, and I reminded him, I said, thank you. You know, he said, well, I'll, I'll go check with Ann Post. I guess in Ireland, that's what the post office is called. He said, I have shipped some books recently. I'm just not sure about security. I thought, are there Bible thieves in the mail? Or are they going to steal my Bible? If so, ship it. Maybe they need it. Ship the thing. Well, I, I don't hear for a while. Finally, on a Monday, a few towards the end of February, it had been five weeks since I'd seen my Bible. I get a plain brown envelope from Ireland with my Bible in it. No notes, no nothing, just an envelope. So I figured out how much it cost him to ship it. I sent him more money than it cost him to ship it just to thank him for that. I sent him an email saying, Richard, I, I got the Bible today. I'm putting some money in the mail to you today. Thank you so much. I get back, thanks. I thought, this guy's not talkative. You know, I don't know how old this guy is. I don't know if he's feeble, if it was a real effort for him to go. But he finally got my Bible to me, and he, he let me know when he did receive the money. And again, it was real, real short words. A few weeks later, I get a call from his brother. His brother's name's Michael Moore. Not that Michael, but a different Michael Moore. And he said, you've been corresponding with my brother. He had your Bible. He shipped it back to you. And he said, I just wanted to touch base with you. I'm in Myrtle Beach. And I said, oh, are you from Rock Hill? Because his sister was from Rock Hill. He says, no, I live in Nova Scotia. I thought, wow, this is a well-traveled family. But I got my Bible back, and Michael and I had a great conversation. He said, yeah, I think that it was probably a Muslim uh, taxi cab driver who really didn't care to have that Bible. I'm glad he wasn't a radical Muslim. He, he would have never, he would have probably burned it or thrown it away. But he gave it to a Christian. And how it got in the taxi cab, I have no idea. I was never in a taxi cab in Israel. I'm on a tour bus all the time. How it, how it ended up from that rock that you saw right by the waterfall to a taxi cab, I have no idea, but it's back in my possession. Does that look familiar? <laughs> now, I could have bought another Bible. Applause. Thank you very much. They're applauding my Bible. So I was glad to get it back because this Bible is valuable to me, but I could have bought another Bible. This morning, I hope the point of the message is that when you leave here, you have a greater appreciation for your Bible. Not that it's a Bible to sit on a counter or a shelf, or a coffee table, one of the weird gifts I got when we got married, my wife and I just celebrated our 38th wedding anniversary, we got a coffee table Bible as a wedding gift. It was white, it was thick, it was too heavy to ever carry around. I think you were just supposed to lay it on a table and people would come and say, my, what a nice Bible. The weird thing about it is it had all the presidents of the United States picture in the back. I thought, I didn't think that was part of the Bible, but in this particular Bible, it you know, open up the first Lincoln, you, you know. But we in America have Bibles at our disposal. I remember being in the Ukraine a number of years ago, passing Bibles out, and when you handed a Bible to a Ukrainian person, they would break down and cry. And I thought, I wish we had that same respect for God's Word and that same love for our Bible, that it's not something we're sitting on a coffee table, but we're reading it every day. We're into understanding what God's Word is teaching us. So we come to this passage of Scripture, just two verses this morning, and that's Paul's word to Timothy. Paul had been in Ephesus. He had started a church there. He had left Ephesus and wrote the book of Ephesians to address issues that were going on. First half of Ephesians deals with a lot of doctrinal issues. The second half deals with some practical how-to live out the Christian life. That continues in the first and second Timothy. Timothy apparently was a young man of God that was a child, literally a spiritual child of Paul. He wasn't Paul's biological son, but he was his son in the faith because Paul had led 
Timothy to the faith. Timothy had been greatly influenced by his mother and grandmother. And now Paul writes him these two letters, the first and second Timothy. Let me read verses 16 and 17. All scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. All scripture. What does the word all mean? It means all. <laughs> it means all. It means everything. It means the whole. What scripture is he talking about? Earlier in the passage, he had used a different word for scripture in the Greek language, which I think he was referring simply to the Old Testament because Timothy had been raised by godly grandmother and mother who had taught him the Old Testament scriptures that were in existence by the time the only Bible they had at the time of the New Testament was the Old Testament. Now the New Testament's being written. And he uses a different word when he says all scripture. He uses a word that includes all holy writings. So what would that include? That would include the letters that are now being passed around the church. It would include the gospels that describe the life of Christ and his ministry, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. John may not have been written yet by this time, but Matthew, Mark, and Luke and other writings, it, it even describes the letter that Paul is writing. For Paul to say all scripture, he's saying to Timothy, there is value in the word of God. And here's why it's valuable, Timothy. It is inspired. The word literally means God breathed. The Bible wasn't written by some men who just were inspired by nature or inspired by art or inspired by anything else. They were, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, God breathed, and they recorded what God told them to write down. So all Scripture is inspired by God. So two things I want you to know about your Bible this morning. First of all, it's God breathed. So when you hold your Bible or you gain access to your Bible on your phone or your iPad or any other device, that's the word of God that he breathed through human authors. So it's trustworthy. It's God's word. And it's profitable. It's valuable. It has merit. It has value. The word profitable literally means helpful or serviceable or productive. And it's a promise of blessing. As we read God's word, we understand it's God breathed. But it also has a benefit. Hear me now. Your words don't have that same promise. So if I stand up on Sunday morning and just preach the opinions of man, that's not inspired by God. And that's not, bears a promise of that. So let's look at the four things that he says it's profitable. Profitable, first of all, for teaching. Literally instruction. It refers to content and not just the process or method. So it's good for teaching. Why do I need to be taught? For this reason, you can't believe or understand or follow what you don't know. You can say you believe the Bible, but if you never open it and read it, you don't even know what you say you believe. So when Paul says to Timothy, Timothy, the word of God that you are expounding for other people, the word of God that you're reading now, in fact, this very letter that I'm writing to you is inspired, God-breathed, it's profitable. False teachers will be exposed by their view of Scripture. There's a lot of men and women today who claim to be Christians. You hear their teaching and it doesn't square with the Word of God. That's false teaching. Be careful. But it's profitable. One way we know that it's profitable is when Jesus was tempted. You remember Jesus was baptized in the Jordan River? 
around, several of the Gospels mention this, but in, Mark, in Matthew chapter 4, he's baptized in Jordan River. It says he was led up from the water into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And I think he was tempted more than the three we hear about. It says he was being tempted for 40 days and 40 nights. He didn't eat for 40 days or 40 nights. At the end of that time, we see the big three. You remember the first one Satan tempted him? He tempted him basically on the fact that after 40 days, what's going to happen to your body? You're hungry. You're starving. I've been in that area of Israel, and there's stones there that look like loaves of bread. So when Satan says, why don't you turn that stone into bread, could Jesus have turned the stone into bread? Yeah, because he was God. Was he hungry? Yes, because he was man. Fully God, fully man. He's hungry. What did Jesus do every time Satan tempted him? Who said that? Raise your hand. Thank you. He quoted Scripture every time. Now, I'm going to be faced from the enemy as well. How am I going to overcome temptation the same way Jesus did? Because Satan comes with half-truths, which are whole lies. And if I know the Word of God, I'm going to smell it in an instant. I'm going to know that's not true. There are things Satan wants you to believe about yourself. There are things he wants you to believe about God that aren't true. And unfortunately, there's people preaching some of those things on radio and television. So if I don't know the Word of God, I'm not going to be able to smell out the falsehood. I read some statistics as I prepared for this message, and it's, I'm not going to read all of them. But if I'm going to believe the Word of God, if I'm going to understand it, if I'm going to live it, i got to know it. This was disturbing. 39% of millennials, those are people born in the 80s to 90s, so they're in their 20s or 30s now. 39% say, they checked the box. The question was, how often do you read your Bible? There were several options. 39% checked the box and said, I never read the Bible. Never. 39%. Only 37% of all Americans read their Bible even once a week. And I'm wondering if they're counting Sunday. <laughs> see, I read my Bible when the preacher gets up and reads Scripture. I open my Bible. I see it on the screen. 40% of people say they're too busy to read the Bible. And yet... 56% of people believe the Bible is the actual or inspired Word of God with no errors. So there's way more people believe the Bible is the inspired Word of God than there are that are reading the Bible. We have more access, access to Scripture than ever before. Most of you have a Bible in your home or multiple Bibles, but more than that, you got it on your phone. you got the Bible app. you got it on your iPad. We've got the Bible. It's not that we don't have access to it, but the question is, are you reading it? So the Bible is profitable for teaching. It's also profitable for reproof, which sounds like a negative word. The word literally means conviction or punishment or refutation of an error. It's in order to convict of misbehavior or false doctrine. So the Bible is good for reproof. The Bible is good at pointing out things in our lives that shouldn't be there. The Bible is good at pointing out sin or error. And that sounds like, man, I don't want somebody jumping on my back pointing out where I'm wrong. And the truth of the matter is, when we're being disobedient, the last thing in the world we want to do is read God's Word. Why is that? Because it reproves you. <laughs> it points out. It shines a light on areas of your life that aren't right and aren't good. And yet, Hebrews 4.12 says, The Word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. It pierces the division of joint and marrow. It's able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. 
like King David in Psalms when he said, search me and try me. See if there's any wicked way in me. That ought to be our prayer every day. God, as I open your word, show me if there's danger in my life. And the good news is, not only does the Bible point out error, but the next word is correction. So the Bible doesn't just say, hey, you messed up right there. The Bible helps put you back up on your feet. If you saw someone who had fallen at the store, what's your natural response? To help them. Help them get back up. You don't have to raise your hand. Have you ever fallen at the store? I remember going skating with our, our children when they were a little younger. It was a birthday party. We were doing that thing where you kind of get in a line and everybody kind of whips the end guy around. I was the end guy. I fell down. They whipped me pretty hard. So I go sliding across the skating room floor, and my daughter starts crying. She said, Dad, I, I'm so sorry. I know you're embarrassed. I'm like, not really. I fall all the time. Don't worry about it. It's, the older I get, the more it's going to happen. But you've got somebody that will help pick you up. And that's what the Word of God does. So not only does it teach, not only does it reprove, but it corrects. Aren't we glad for that? Literally a straightening up again, a rectifying, a restoring to original condition. Scripture builds you up by divine correction. Then the last thing it says Scripture does is it trains us in righteousness. This was the word that was originally used to mean for bringing a child up the way that he or she should go. So the Bible trains us. It points us in the right direction. So not only does it show us what's the wrong direction and corrects that, it points us in the right direction. It makes us pointed towards righteousness. It points out the right way. And then Scripture has a purpose. Purpose. I'm going to pick up the pace here a little bit because I've got to get to the last point. So that. Verse 17. Paul said verse 16, then he says so that. I love those two words. When you see those in Scripture, here's what he's saying. The, the fact that this is true is so that this can be true. So that the man of God or the woman of God may be adequate and equipped. Adequate, literally, complete or perfect, capable, proficient in everything they're called to be or to do. You're adequate. You're able to accomplish the task that God's called you to. And if you're a child of God, he's called you to a task. You're adequate, but you're also equipped, literally equipped fully or finished out. You're able to meet the demands of righteousness. So the Bible trains you, teaches you, points out the wrong, corrects the wrong, points you on the right path so that you can live a godly Christian life. So what's your calling? What's your purpose? One of the questions, if you don't know the answer to that, you need to be asking God on a regular basis. Is God, what are you calling me to? What, what is your purpose for me? Why am I here? And then my last point is this. Over the years, I'm a pastor, been pa pastoring for a long time. I hear people say things that they claim are in Scripture that aren't in Scripture. I've got six of them. There's a lot more. I may not get to all six of them. But it bothers me when I hear people say this. Well, my Bible says. But I say, well, some of what you're saying, you must have wrote that in there. The most popular one everybody knows is people say, well, my Bible says God helps those that help themselves. Is that in Scripture? No. <laughs> not only is it not in Scripture, it contradicts everything that is in Scripture. Does God come for the help? The helpful or the helpless? Look at Romans 5, 6. For while we were still helpless at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. If you could help yourself, you don't need a Savior. 
I can't help myself. That's why I need Jesus desperately. The next one. Some of these are going to make you go, you're going to have to think. Some of them are going to make you mad. Next one is this. I hear this a lot. God will never put on you more than you can handle. A lot of people believe that's in Scripture. Well, if God doesn't put on me more than I can handle, I don't need God. God allows regularly things in my life that I have to throw my hands up and say, Help! I'm desperate. I'm needy for you. Now, why do people think that? There's a verse in Corinthians. In fact, we'll look at it. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13. No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. And God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able. But with the temptation, will provide the way of escape also, so that you'll be able to endure it. Okay? He doesn't allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able. But, folks, there will be things in your life on a regular basis that you have to cry out, God, I can't do this. Apart from you, I can do nothing. I need you. Here's the third one. If you're in the center of God's will, you'll never be sick. You'll never have a struggle. You'll never have a problem. There'll never be a storm. How do I know that's not true? Do you remember the storm in Mark chapter 4? When the disciples are in the boat with Jesus, he's asleep on the cushion and a storm comes up. Were they where God told them to be? I often wonder, you know, did, when they finally wake Jesus up because they think they're about to die, did any of them think, whose idea was this? <laughs> Why didn't we check the weather channel? What are we doing out here in the middle of the night in a storm on the Sea of Galilee? Well, whose idea was it? It was God's idea. Jesus told them, get in the boat. So listen, you can be doing exactly what God's called you to do. And storms still come upon our lives. So don't let somebody challenge you. That's kind of what Job's friends did. Why don't you just curse God and die? It should make us run to God, not from God. Here's one that I hear at funerals. Well, heaven must have needed another angel. When you die and go to heaven, you do not become an angel. Now, that's going to challenge some of you. You're thinking, well, wait a minute. I thought that's what, no. Angels were created by God. They've all been created. There's not new angels. What are you? You're a saint. In fact, if you read the Bible, there's things that the angels wish were true about them that are true of you. Angels can't be redeemed. Some fall, have fallen. They'll spend eternity separated from God. Here's one. Well, mom's looking down from heaven. I remember hearing Phil Mickelson when he won the Masters for the first time. You remember that? He sinks the putt and he jumps about three inches off the ground. And he said afterwards, he said, I think my granddad helped that ball go in the hole. I thought, if your granddad is in heaven, he's in the presence of Almighty God. Do you think he said, God, I need to take a day off? You may not be aware, my grandson's playing the Masters. I need to help him on the last hole. Now, here's where that thought comes from. It comes from a misunderstanding of Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1. Let me read the verse to you. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run the race, endurance the race that is set before us. So people misinterpret that verse to mean, and I guess in their mind, there's these grandstands in heaven. And they're watching us. What's the truth about that verse? Look at chapter 11. What's chapter 11 been about? All these men and women of faith that have gone on before us. The word witness is the word, is the word martyr. 
They're not watching us. We're watching them. Since we have so great a cloud of martyrs, witnesses to the faith surrounding us, we can see their testimony. All of Hebrews chapter 11. Then you get to verse 1 and that verse occurs. They're not watching us. In fact, think about it. If your loved ones could watch you, don't you think there'd be times of sadness? Wouldn't it be a little creepy? Now, God's watching you. That ought to be enough. But if your loved ones have gone under the presence of God, they're in the presence of God. Yeah, they're waiting on you in heaven. But they're not watching. I'll do one more. This was a sign that was in Merle's Inlet a few years ago. It was a big billboard with a hand sticking out that said, God needs you. He does? For what? God doesn't need me. It's really better news than that. God wants me. That's way better than God needs me. The glory of God is not riding on me. I had the opportunity to worship God, to bring glory to God, but I desperately need Him. He doesn't need me. Now, why did I go into all of those six things? And there's more. Some of you are thinking of some, but you hear too. It's because if this is the inspired Word of God, God breathed, one of the things we learn from what Paul writes to Timothy is in the last days, false teachers are going to rise. In the last days, there's going to be confusion about the trustworthiness of the Word of God. And when you got men and women on television and radio or just at the grocery store claiming things about Scripture that aren't true, somebody needs to stand up and say, that's not even what the Bible says. The closer we get to the return of Christ, men and women, we need to know this Word. It needs to impact our lives. It needs to be teaching us. If you're not reading it, reading it, it isn't teaching you. It needs to be reproving us. We need to open our life up to the light of God's Word to shine in our life and show us where there's error or sin or danger. We need to let it correct us. Put me back on the right path. Train me in the way of righteousness. Is that happening in your life, in your relationship with the Word of God? Let's pray together. Father, Thank you that we can speak confidently about the Word of God. That it's not just a historical book. It's not just a dead book. It's living and active. And it's profitable. So God, I pray we would have a greater appreciation for our Bibles. Not just the one in our hand, but the fact we have access to the holy, inspired, God-breathed Word. Thank you for that. Thank you that you've protected Scripture over the years. And we can now learn about you and even learn about us by reading about you. May it be ever more important even today and tomorrow than it ever has been in your life. I pray that on behalf of myself. I pray that on behalf of the people here this morning. In Jesus' name. I encourage you to stand for a closing prayer.